horses. Oh yeah. Fade out. <laughs> and we're back. That kind of worked. It did. Uh, Welcome back to Vertigo Voices. Hello, hello. Still rocking the theme songs. <laughs> I think I found a new calling. <laughs> we bring you something fresh every time. I just, uh, just wish other people could be as talented as me when it comes to musical stylings. It's well, no big deal. Yeah, you really do so much with this podcast. Composed that song um, over the course of just a few minutes <laughs> <laughs> well done well done okay um into episode 16 we're talking about 2020 the year 2020 and the comic book 2020 what there was a comic book <laughs> yeah it's a comic book all about 2020 decades before it published in 97 98 yeah, 97 to 98 okay. which i'll get into that in a minute actually i'm gonna make a note of that december 98 Got something to talk about, about December, no, 97, excuse me, December 97. Before we do that, uh, phone check. <laughs> We're good this yeah, time. <laughs> uh, and um, do we have any news? I think we, you know, I don't think so. We, re- we record twice in a day, so there's no new news between <laughs> right now. <laughs> right. If you want the news, turn on the TV. Here's my things. news. Uh, I've started watching WandaVision. Tell us more, please. I don't have Disney Plus. <laughs> oh, well, it's. Uh, have you ever heard of Marvel Comics? Rings a bell. <laughs> Marvel, Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe. Yeah, it's their first show. Um, it's uh, about Wanda and the Vision. When they first announced this show, geez, 2018 or something, like, yeah, Wanda Maximoff's getting around series and it's going to be called WandaVision. And I was like, objectively, that is the worst title you could ever give a show. <laughs> WandaVision is a terrible title. Why did you do that? That sounds fucking awful. And now that it's out, like, no, it makes perfect sense. That's literally the perfect title. <laughs> and you made mention earlier that uh, um, for all the naysayers who say that the comic book movies are played out. Yeah, it's, it's fucking weird. It's a weird show, man. It's, uh, this is a, a series that, so two episodes are out so far. They're kind of spoiler-proof. Like, you could tell everyone every, or you could tell somebody everything that happens in the first couple of episodes, and it wouldn't really impact it at all. Because they're both black and white sitcoms from like the 1950s and 60s. And the comic book elements of it are so tiny that uh, it's difficult to, like, it. It's just a tropey sitcom. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a, a fucking boss coming over for dinner. we got to figure out what to do. Oh, no, we're having trouble in the kitchen, and boss isn't going to give me the big promotion if we don't get the dinner right. And, like, that's it. That's the first episode. <laughs> Which is, like, little hints about the fact that one of the guys is a robot and the other one is a magic-using magic superhero. <laughs> right. So they're playing their cards close to the chest. Yeah, and it's, it's really weird, and it's really interesting, and I can't see any other studio but marvel being able to pull this off because of, like the the just the audacity it takes to make uh full frame <laughs> um <laughs> black and white 1950s sitcom starring Mar- marvel heroes you know right right which ties into our previous episode about you know dcu and wonder woman 1984 where not saying every marvel film has been perfect but like you were saying they have a plan yeah and they know their characters. Yes. Yeah. They, they know what's going to work. Uh, actually, there's a little bit of news. Um, ben Affleck was recently interviewed um, just about Batman and 
all the shit that he's been doing over the years. And there was a quote from the interview where he talks about Kevin Feige as the head of Marvel and the person that kind of steers the ship. Um, and he said, Kevin Feige is the only guy in the world that if he told me, I know what the audience wants, I'd believe him 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's coming from the star of DCEU films. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. And I mean, again, Kevin, and Kevin Feige has been steering this ship since uh, the beginning of the MCU. And uh, he's had his battles along the way, like for a while there. Ike Perlmutter was kind of in charge of the Marvel brand, who's a notable shitbag, and uh, fought with Feige over and over. Like, Feige was trying to get a Black Panther movie going um, really early on, and Ike Perlmutter wouldn't let him because he's a racist. And, um, I mean, he, he is. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like a big right-wing like Trump donor, so of course he's going to be racist. Yeah. Um, and then he kept pushing for an Inhumans movie that... Uh, Feige didn't think would do well, so Perlmutter turned it into a TV show instead, and guess what? It fucking tanked. <laughs> <laughs> and rightfully so. And uh, that show, it's horrible. Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, the, the bad guys in that movie are like slaves that want to be freed. Oh, yeah. go figure. The heroes are the ruling class. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course they are. They're just like, hey man, we're just we're just trying to keep things copacetic, you know. <laughs> Because let, the rich will save yeah. us. <laughs> let us live in our mansion, and you guys go down into the mines, develop black lung or whatever, and we'll all be fine. <laughs> you know? yeah. Why do you want to upset the balance? Yes. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, Feige's been running things, and obviously he knows what he's doing, and Marvel has been knocking it out of the park. Even, like, their worst movies, like, I'd say probably my least favorite movie of the MCU is Thor The Dark World. Mm-hmm. Probably. I don't know. And even that is like that's a very watchable, competent action movie. Right, I, I agree. I, the worst for me is probably Edward Norton's The Hulk, yeah. just because it's too long. It's ridiculously too long. It's, it's not bad, it's but not long. I think it's less than two hours. Is it really? It so. felt like fucking forever. I, I really <laughs> like. I really like the supporting story in that movie. Like I really like supporting cast. I fucking love what's his name, uh, William Hurt, Thunderbolt Ross. And I love Tim Roth as the bad guy. Yes. And it's noticeable to me that William Hurt has since played that role in other movies, um, other MCU movies. And then it was recently announced that Tim Roth is coming back to play the Abomination again. Really? Yeah, in the She-Hulk series. Okay, I hope his CGI is better this time. Yeah. One of my big, like, one of the weird things about that movie is the design for the Abomination. In the comics, he always has these weird, like, webbed ears. Yeah. And the director, Louis Leterrier, said that uh, he didn't want to have the webbed ears on there because he felt that Hulk would just tear him off. <laughs> like, well, yeah, or you could just say that he's a giant, strong monster. Like, it's like saying, well, why doesn't he just rip the Hulk's ears off? Like, because they're strong, like him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's a... <laughs> of all the things he had to worry about with that film, I think ears were probably <laughs> lesser on the scale. But I think that movie's better than most people will give it credit for. It's still not perfect, but I think a lot of the action is really good. I think the final battle's a little boring, just because it's two CGI monsters slapping against each other. Yeah. And back then, that wasn't as impressive. Like, now you can have a CGI Hulk fighting a CGI Thanos, and it looks fucking cool and compelling. <laughs> like, it does. And, but back then, it just it didn't quite work. And I think their, their reach exceeded their grasp a bit. Um, but whatever, it was a learning curve. <laughs> that was only the second movie. True, true. And 
and I don't I don't hold it against them. It's just not one that I get really excited about. But I really uh, the scene where um, Blonsky and his team first fight the Hulk in the soda factory. I think it's a really fucking awesome scene. Well done. When did that movie come out? Like, 2008. Yeah, 2008. Okay, I've only seen it twice. I saw it once in the theater, and uh, I got really bored. My girlfriend and I, just, it, and it was near the end with the CGI mishmash monster fight. We were like, okay, this has gone on too long. And then I watched it again, and I do really like the chemistry between Edward Norton and Liv Tyler, although that didn't go anywhere. In, in, yeah. <laughs> well, it didn't go anywhere. Um, so I should probably watch it again. I just remember it as being probably the least memorable of the Marvel yeah. movies that I've seen so far. That's fair. I think uh, it's positioned in the MCU. Like, it's been... I think for a while, people tried to forget it. And then when they brought back... Um, what's his name? Uh, when they brought back Ross in Civil War, and now he's been in both Infinity or uh, Infinity War and Endgame, and then he's going to be in the new Black Widow movie... I think now it's, like, embraced better than it was. Probably. It also, it just feels weird for a recast, you know? The fact that they got Norton, and now it's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ruffalo. Ruffalo. And Ruffalo is, like, he has completely made that role his own. <laughs> he did. He <laughs> you know, did. people talk about deep fake technology, you know, changing actors' faces and shit. If I could, I would go back and just deep fake Ruffalo's face onto Edward Norton. <laughs> <laughs> That. If I yeah. knew how to do that, that's what I would do with, with my power. <laughs> Make that a Ruffalo movie all yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, Cameo? How you can, that oh, service, yes. you can get people to say stuff to you, whatever. I, I desperately wanted Vinnie Jones to be on Cameo <laughs> so that I could have him just read all of the dialogue that Juggernaut has in uh, Deadpool 2. <laughs> <laughs> and then put Vinnie Jones' voice over that. Because in, in Deadpool 2, he's just played by Ryan Reynolds. Mm. And I think it would be fun. Because I liked Vinnie Jones. And he was, like, he was done dirty in X-Men 3. <laughs> I, I'd like to see him play a real version of Juggernaut. Right, right. <laughs> and for all the flack that that movie gets, it's still probably out of the three original X-Men movie. That is the line that gets quoted most often. I'm the Juggernaut, bitch! Well, it's not even his line. That's taken from a meme. <laughs> but he made it his line. There's, I love the delivery of that. I don't know. I don't like it. No? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so my friend Bear made a fan edit of X-Men 3. Mm-hmm. Um, and he took that line out because if you take the line out, it makes more sense. There's a scene where Kitty Pride is running from him. And he goes, don't you know who I am? And then she runs away and he says, I'm the Juggernaut, bitch. But she doesn't hear that. She's already gone. Yeah. And then he crashes through the wall and says, I'm not the guy to play hide-and-go-seek with. <laughs> and so when you take that line out, he goes, don't you know who I am? <sighs> I'm not the guy to play hide-and-go-seek with. That is better. <laughs> that is better. I like that. But anyway, right, they, there's like four or five different takes of that, too. One of them, he says, here's Juggy. <laughs> yeah. We almost got that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Nearly avoided. Oh. <laughs> and I would argue that the most memorable line of any X-Men movie is... Holy shit. Because that is Wolverine's reoccurring line. He says it in every movie, except for X-Men Origins Wolverine, unless you watch my fan edit of it, in which he does say it. (laughs) (laughs) Give him that line. (laughs) You made a fan edit of that? Yeah. So there's a scene when he meets Deadpool at the end, and Deadpool's big sword comes out, like his ridiculously long sword comes out of his arm. And in the original version, Logan goes, okay. (laughs) 
but I just dubbed over, holy shit. <laughs> and it works out pretty well, because his okay lasts about the same amount of time as holy shit. <laughs> well done, sir. Yeah, I made a fan out of that a few years ago. It's uh, my The best praise I got from it, somebody on Twitter, I sent them a copy years ago, and they said, you made that shit movie pretty watchable. <laughs> Well, I, do you still have it? I should yeah. watch it. <laughs> I think I've, I've got a copy of it. I've, I think I've more than one copy. Because um, it was on Bear's old hard drive, so the original's gone. <laughs> but I've got a couple DVDs of it left, and I have one DVD with commentary, too. Because um, it helps to watch both movies to really see the differences. <laughs> Somebody like me, I can spot them like that, because I've seen those movies so many fucking times. But the average person may not pick up on a lot of the subtleties of what I've done there. <laughs> well, I'll have to see if I can. Yeah, but, you know, why are we talking about X-Men? Fucking hell. This is Vertigo. Oh, it's, because <laughs> the, it's, because, it's because the Dreamstone was actually in X-Men Origins Wolverine. Did you know that? It was not. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. No, it was not. Don't no, no, it, it was. <laughs> No, I'm being serious. It was in there. It was not. No, I'm seriously I'm not joking. It was in there. You're joking. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. No. <laughs> I think you're. Are you? You're. You're messing with me now. It was in there. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Taking advantage of my blondness, I was like, no, no. <laughs> there were so many things from that movie I tried to erase from my mind already. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, 2020. Doing the 2020 episode, Vertigo Voices. So one thing that I thought of back in, like, February, really be before just pop culture's ground to a screeching halt because of the virus, um, it's a real goddamn shame that there wasn't a movie that came out last year called Hindsight. Mm. The marketing just writes itself. <laughs> it really does. Hindsight 2020. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, like that. I, whatever. That should have done that. So this episode is going to be called Hindsight 2020. <laughs> You're welcome, all. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. About, about that. And really, you know, so most of 2020 was basically just a catch-up year, you know? Mm -hmm. I spent a good chunk of the year just going through my, my DVD collection and watching old movies that I haven't watched in ages, taking the time to uh, add them to my Letterboxd account. <laughs> <laughs> Cataloging. Which, uh, Letterboxd does a year-end review email that they send people, and according to Letterboxd, I watched 964 movies last year, <laughs> which equaled an unknown amount of hours. It's 999-plus hours. <laughs> Spent watching movies in 2020. <laughs> it's the perfect storm of of uh, being stuck inside and just nothing new. <laughs> I just watched a lot of old shit. F you, but <laughs> over and over and over. Well, that does lead into you know I'm I'm certainly not the first to say it. It was talked about a lot last year, and it'll probably be talked about more this year because we're not out of the woods yet, folks. Yeah. But just how you know we all in some form or another turned to arts and entertainment to help, you know, help us slog through and help yeah. us get through. And uh, you, you definitely caught up. No, I'm still pretty far behind. <laughs> <laughs> There's no catching up to me, okay? I, That's true. I, I'm just, I'm never going to be where I want in terms of uh, <laughs> my pop culture. There's always something new to learn, something new to watch, some new bit of trivia that I don't yet know. <laughs> 
Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a place to start. Um, oh, here's one I watched. Butt Boy. Oh, that's a good place to start. Have you heard about that movie? I have not at all. Please so it actually, it actually came out in 2019, <laughs> but I, it, I think it started streaming in 2020. It's called Butt Boy. It's, um, again, I can't stress this enough. This is an actual film. Like, a, like literally, like had a director, had some stars in it, um, a production company behind it. And it's called Butt Boy. <laughs> Why did they settle on that title, pray tell? Um, so it's about a serial killer stuffs people into his butt. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Episode over. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it. So, uh, here, here's the explanation on Letterboxd. Detective Fox loves work in alcohol. After he goes to AA, his sponsor, Chip, becomes a suspect in his investigation for a missing child. Fox believes people are disappearing up Chip's butt. <laughs> there you have it. And yeah, that's, that's true. That's the story. Um, it's, uh, it's, with a name like Butt Boy, I ex- frankly expected more from this movie. <laughs> Did it kind of let you down a little bit? Well, it let me down because it wasn't nearly as weird as it should have been. 99% of this movie is a very standard police procedural. Oh. Cop on the edge, trying to drink away his demons while he's hunting bad guys. Wouldn't you know it, his new friend just happens to be the killer. He's trying to put the pieces together. And, uh, like, that's fine, and, and you know, that's a trope that we've seen a million times. I, I just wish it would have been weirder. <laughs> and again, it's a movie about stuffing people up his butt. Right. You'd think that that would definitely go there. The hero gets stuffed up his butt at one point, and he's in this wild, mystical butt world that was literally, they just filmed inside an old cave and then tinted it red. <laughs> so, you know, as, as uh, vulgar as it sounds, it sounds like there's a lot you can actually do with that. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, I just, it's weird, but I wish it was weirder. Ah, so not quite Swiss Army Man weird. Butt Boy, three out of five. Out of five. I, I enjoyed the uh, idea behind it. I just felt that uh, it wasn't wasn't all that it could have been. <laughs> Potential not quite met. Okay, okay. Well, you know that's a that's a good opener. I don't think I I all of a sudden can't think of anything that might even remotely compare. <laughs> you didn't watch Butt Boy or something thereabouts. <laughs> I did not, unfortunately. Um. What would you say was probably, uh, I don't want, you know, it's too hard to get into, like, favorites, but what's the movie you watched that really stuck with you? Uh, there's a lot. I don't know. Um, the uh, One of my favorites that I rewatched this year that I hadn't watched in a long time, um, on New Year's Eve, I watched Strange Days. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that. That movie really stuck with me because that is a shockingly prescient movie for the year 2020. That, that movie was made in 1995, directed by Catherine Bigelow, co-written by James Cameron. Um, it felt so goddamn now. <laughs> the, the only thing that it falters on is technology. It's all about this, like, this dude uh, who pedals in um, like this technology. They're called squids. And it's this like, shell you put on your head, and it records what you see. Mm-hmm. And people, like, share these memories. And, like, it records it to a disc. You pop it in. You can see what this guy saw when he was shooting at cops or whatever. Or robbing a bank and then falling to his death. And it's all about this guy that, that pedals in that. And then it, 
spins off into a huge sprawling story about police brutality. Uh, somebody records a police officer murdering an innocent black man. Mm-hmm. And then the cops trying to get that tape before it goes public. And it's literally, if you replace the squid thing with cell phones and YouTube, it's 2020. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah. it's so shocking. And the only thing it's missing is a virus subplot. <laughs> because I think probably the screenwriter's like, fucking, that's too much. <laughs> that's, that's too unrealistic. <laughs> You're trying to do too much. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was amazing. Like, it ends with a big fight between, um, oh, crap. What's her name? Angela Bassett's character? Yes. It ends with a big fight between Angela Bassett and two white cops in Times Square as, like, it ends with her cuffing them up and then they use their clout to, like, nobody will believe her. She's like, you guys are murderers! And the other cops won't believe her, so they let her out and they end up just, like, beating her with sticks while then the crowd uh, masses in and it, like, just ends with... Uh, a fucking protest, you know, like cops versus civilians. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh man. Ooh, yeah, too relevant. Yeah, exactly. And shockingly well done. And um, again, I, I can't can't believe it came out in ninety five. But it also just goes to show that these issues have been going on for decades, and most people have just been too happy to look the other way. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, if a fucking Hollywood movie came out in 1995 addressing these things. <laughs> right. D- written by James Cameron, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nothing, nothing new, unfortunately, yeah. but still very vital. Um, I actually tried to rent that New Year's Eve after you texted me, and I it's not available for rent. Um, I couldn't find it on Amazon Prime or on uh, Vudu. One of the many reasons I have the gorgeous DVD collection that I do. <laughs> you do have a gorgeous DVD collection. Absolutely. But no, that's uh, that's one I should add to my list for 2021. So what's a 2020 movie that you watched in 2020 or from 2020? Uh, let's talk about The Invisible Man real quick. Oh, yeah. That came out in 2020. Yeah. This is like five years ago. It does, doesn't it? That was actually um, the last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic hit. That's the first movie I didn't see in theaters oh, really? <laughs> because I went to go see it and found out that the theaters were closed. Oh shoot! It's like God damn it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I, uh, you and I have talked about it a little bit before. Yeah. Check previous episodes. Um, but in terms of how uh, the whole quote unquote dark universe should unfold, it was like, you know, Thank you. It was James Wan that directed The Invisible Man. Uh, no, um, Lee Winnell. Lee Winnell. Um, episode 13, The Nobody. You can hear us go deeper into The Invisible Man's story and The Invisible Man, I don't know, the mythos, I guess, surrounding the character and then that movie specifically. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, that uh, Lee Winnell did a good job of uh, doing, like you and I have discussed before, of making... Well, just making a singular story that stands on its own and does not try to tie into any other, you know, um, extended universe nonsense, mm-hmm. just knocked it out of the park. And uh, Elizabeth Moss does an excellent job in the film. And mm-hmm. I think it, uh, it, true, it's not that much about the the scientist, but I think what they do with the story is uh, just a great way to make it fresh and modern and... Uh, not make you feel like an idiot for watching it. Yeah. Shockingly well-directed. One of the things I really liked about that movie is how oftentimes 
the scenes are framed so that the Invisible Man is in the shot, even though you can't see him. Right. It's framed in a way that acknowledges that there's another presence there without making it feel forced or boring. Like, it just feels fucking tense. Because, and I, I think that's probably playing with the title, too. You're going to a movie called The Invisible Man. But the first chunk of the movie, there's nothing about him or that in there. It's just the implication that something is happening to this woman and trying to figure out how and why. And it ties into her past and all that, you know. Um, and it's not till probably the, what, hour mark that the idea of the invisible suit is introduced. Really? Mm-hmm. And anyway, that's, it's just shockingly well done, because that could have gone... It could have been really boring. <laughs> yeah. Really boring or really corny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, again, just having a movie about the Invisible Man not focus on the Invisible Man. It could have just, like, like come on, get to the good part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, just the way they start, too. Like, it starts out, you're just immediately plunged right into the story, and you don't get, you know, uh, half an hour of people just talking at you about, you know, well, I just escaped an abusive relationship. And, you know, this is why he was such a bad man. It's like, they show you, they show you. And so when he does finally show up as the invisible man, it kind of makes you feel almost as crazy as she must feel trying to explain to the people around her that, you know, this, I'm I'm being stalked and hunted by an invisible man. And that opening scene, uh, the tension, that is portrayed in that opening scene is like a masterclass on how to build tension in a movie. Yes. It's really fucking hard to do. (laughs) And that movie makes it look easy because it's the first thing you get this incredibly tense scene. And usually to have that level of tension, it requires building throughout the narrative. You almost never open on something that tense, but Lee Winnell is, I mean, he's a really fucking good director. Have you seen upgrade? Yes, I really it's like that. Another, movie. yeah, a great fucking super low budget movie that looks like it cost three hundred million dollars. You know, like <laughs> right. it's gorgeously put together and shot, and um, and I think those are the only two movies he's actually directed. Really? Yeah, he's done a lot of work in Hollywood and done a lot of writing, and he's apparently he's been in Hollywood for like twenty five years oh. as like an assistant and just like well, not not necessarily Hollywood because he's Australian. He's been in the film industry <laughs> forever. Um, just working his way up. And nice. now he's got the you know most successful fucking monster movie in the last however many years. <laughs> right. No kidding. No kidding. I'm so glad that he just got the reins to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was like perfect storm. And all came from the, the failure of uh, Universal wanting to make a goddamn Marvel's Avengers out of the mummy. <laughs> Which nobody asked yeah, for. Exactly. Nobody wanted that. And... Uh, um, but, you know, that's actually a, a bad joke that um, my brother and I like to say occasionally about Upgrade is we call it the good Venom. Yeah, exactly. And that, that gets thrown around a lot. And not, not just because the lead actor, Logan Marshall Green, looks a lot like Tom Hardy, but the, uh, the stories are pretty similar, like Alien Symbiote or uh, uh, Rogue AI. Pretty similar stories, and yeah, significantly better than fucking Venom. <laughs> All right, your turn. Oh, let's see. What else did I watch this year? Um, oh, I watched the new... You know, like the DC has a bunch of animated movies. Um, they put out one, I think in like October, called uh, Death in the Family. Adaptation of the uh, Death in the Family storyline, where Robin got killed off That's right. in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so this is a... It's... 
I gotta back up a little bit. <laughs> in like 2010, DC put out a movie called Under the Red Hood. It's an adaptation of Under the Hood by Judd Winnick. I think it was Judd Winnick. Um, that brought back Jason Todd. Brought him back from the dead. He's this new character named Red Hood that took the Joker's old alias. And this uh, movie ad- adapted that story. And it was pretty good. It was a, probably one of uh, DC's best animated movies. So then they announced that they were going to do a prequel to that called Death in the Family, showing how Jason died and all that. But like the original story, it was going to be choose-your-own-adventure, kind of. Mm -hmm. So the original story, Robin gets trapped in a building, Joker beats him up, building explodes. Readers had to call in and decide if, A, they wanted Robin to live, or B, wanted him to die. And they tally up the votes, whatever happened would happen. And uh, they say that he got more votes to die, so they killed off Robin. Well, this movie is like multiple choice. So, like, you watch it, it gets to the part where the building explodes and then it's like will robin live or die and you pick it and the movie branches from there which is interesting idea but it is done so fucking poorly it's essentially a remake not even a remake it's essentially under the red hood because they got the same voice cast to come back they like probably 80 percent of the movie is just footage from under the red hood oh that sucks with narration over it that's ridiculous yes it's like a fucking clip show like well, and then uh, he went out and fought Black Mask. And then it shows footage from that movie. And then after that, things got really bad. Boy, I'll tell you what. Joker was there. But I'm not going to let Joker talk because we didn't get that actor back. So um, here's just some scenes of Joker fighting him. And um, Joker said this. <laughs> it literally has Joker talking. But, like, over his voice is Batman saying, and then Joker told me that he wasn't going to do that. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was fucking terrible. Um, I really wanted to like it because that's an inter- interesting story and it's an important story in Batman's mythos, but it was done fucking atrociously. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's probably 20 minutes. It's, uh, if you watch all the endings and compile everything into one movie, it's probably two hours long and there's probably 20 minutes of new footage and an hour and a half of new narration. <laughs> mm. That's ee, ee. no, that's, that's cringy. Yeah. It's kind of like a um, in the vein of what they did with the Killing Joke, where you know the first half is just this mishmash of shit that you don't need, and then like the last half is basically the comic book. Yeah, yeah. it's completely different than that. <laughs> well, you, you know what I mean, though. That same, that same kind of lazy storytelling device where they're like, we don't know what to do with the rest of this, but here's the old thing that you love so much. I mean, at least with Killing Joke, they hired, like, a new writer to write a story and had actors come in and record that instead of literally just talking over what they already filmed. I, I cannot stress enough how cheap and stupid that was. That is pretty cheap and stupid. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. That's a really bad choose-your-own-adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, um, uh, that one definitely gets a thumbs down. It sounds like will not be missed from its uh... <laughs> too true. Yeah. And that actually did come out last year, so that is a 2020 movie. There you go. We're doing pretty good on this 2020 thing. <laughs> oh, so far, so good. <laughs> so what, what's one for you? Uh, let's talk about uh, Gretel and Hansel. Yeah, bit. Gretel and Hansel. That came out like January 2020. I think so. Directed by Oz Perkins. His third film. Yes. Like third film. Third yes. film. Mm-hmm. And yeah, after Black Coat's daughter, and I'm the sassy little thing that lives on the <laughs> <laughs> Is that the title, right? 
Yeah. I'm yeah. the, I'm exactly. the ghostly little thing that's going to make you gasp. <laughs> For those wondering. <laughs> the actual, what's the actual title? <laughs> I am the pretty thing that lives in the house. Okay. Which you did not care for. I fucking hated that movie. That's, uh, <laughs> I actually watched it in January, so I didn't watch it last year. But that was aggressively boring. Like, I've... I, some movies are accidentally boring. <laughs> that one felt like it was trying to be boring. <laughs> boring on purpose. Yes. But. Really well directed, though. I mean, well, kind of. Really well shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oz Perkins knows how to frame a scene, and he knows how to light things well and make things look pretty, but um, I did not like that movie at all. Which... You know, honestly, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. But I understand why people don't, because Oz Perkins, even though his filmography is very small, um, even with Black Coat's daughter, you could say that he doesn't care so much about um, plot as much as he cares about mood and atmosphere. Yeah, that's true. And I could, like, when I first saw I'm a Pretty uh, Little Thing That Lives in the House, Pretty Sassy, pretty, whatever. Pretty little, pretty little <laughs> chick talking on the phone. <laughs> pretty Little Liar That Lives in yes, the House. Yes, Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> Um, I didn't particularly care for it either. It's one that I had to come back and watch. Um, but the way I think about that film now is that basically all he wanted to do was to take the idea of a fairy tale princess running into the dark forest and what happens if the fairy tale princess never makes it out of the forest. And that's basically the movie. Um, so who's the fairy tale princess here? What's that actress's name? Ruth? Ruth Wilson? Ruth Wilson, yes. Not the... So... So she's the pretty little thing, but not the other pretty little thing. <laughs> They're both pretty There's little things. There's two pretty things. little things. Yes. Yeah, that's a, so another thing. The movie opens with five minutes of narration. <laughs> five fucking minutes of narration. Which it probably doesn't need. No, not at all. No movie needs that much narration. <laughs> like, nobody. Not at all. I mean, if, if you have a movie that needs five minutes of narration to set up, make a different movie. <laughs> Rewrite your movie. Make things clearer. Go back to the drawing board. Which, that was another problem I had with Gretel and Hansel. Mm -hmm. there was, so there's the opening narration of that movie that gives the queen's backstory, or queen, the witch's backstory, or whatever. Mm, yeah. which, which, I was fine with that. And then it cuts to um, the girl from It giving her narration as Gretel. Nothing that she says as Gretel needed to be in the movie. I agree. None of that. her narration. I agree. I agree. And that's, I think, one of Oz Perkins... You could say it's a weakness of his because he does like that mood and he does like that atmosphere. He likes to set the scene for you. But like you said, maybe that's something that as he goes along, he could sharpen because yeah. like, just sell us on the scene, man. If, if you can't um, like make us wonder, like you don't have to, you don't have to hold our hand yeah. along the way. Um, but I would say that Gretel and Hansel is probably the most linear of the movies that he's put out so far in terms of this is the plot. There is a beginning, a middle and end. Um, I think it's my favorite of his that I've seen um, because I I think, again, it was well shot. Although he totally ripped off most of his look of the movie from Holy Mountain by Alejandro Jodorowsky. I have not seen that. Um, let me show you a quick image. I'm just going to type in Holy Mountain Jodorowsky and I bet that... Here we go. I don't know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. Yep. Yep. Oh, wow. Wow. Just the style, like that, that's literally one of the first images of the movie is that, the triangle. Yep. There's a, like the triangle in the background. There you go. Yeah. It's like the imagery of a, of a character dressed in black with a big 
hat. <laughs> right, right. Um, and triangles factor a yeah, lot. Triangle. In... Very odd architecture. Yes. Okay, well, you could see how he was inspired by that movie. Like tattoos. Oh, yeah, yeah. The uh, the younger version of the witch has a lot of tattoos. Which, oh, man. I don't get me started on that. Please, <laughs> <laughs> get started. So, um, so okay, let's... Let me go back to the beginning of, of the Gretel narrating. Somebody was horribly miscast in that movie. I don't know who. Hansel or Gretel. One of them, they don't feel like siblings. Mm-hmm. Hansel's like, oh, Gretel, we can't go into the woods. We're going to die if we go in there. And she's like, hey, fucking settle down, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, they, they're not, she's, she's way too modern and he's way too of the past. And I don't know how to balance that out, but somebody should have been recast. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And then uh, going back to the whole modern thing, when the evil witch played by Alex Kriga? Kriga? Kriga. Kriga. The Kriga. artist first. Yes, that's right. Okay. Alice Kriga plays the, the witch in the woods who lures them into her house of bounty. Um, when they show the young version of her or whatever, like she was pretending to be old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when they show the young version of her, that's like every Facebook quote pagan girl taking pictures out in the woods to commune with the spirits. Yes. You have the dark, long dark hair and mm-hmm. the, the like nonsense tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I admit. I'm getting back to my roots. And look at these antlers I found. Aren't they cool? I'm going to make a dream catcher out of them. <laughs> I admit, when she, when she emerges finally and you see her, I was like, oh, I've seen you on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Pretty sure I'm Facebook friends with you. Or if not, we have a mutual. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Which, you know, it's nothing against that aesthetic. I personally like it. But when it shows up and it was a little bit jarring, like, oh, like she's got Betty Page bangs. Yeah. and <laughs> It's an aesthetic that doesn't fit this story at all. No, no. And it's, it feels very modern and cool. It does. It's not to say there's anything wrong with being modern and cool, but it's not this story. No. And I think the rest of the film, uh, he and his production team did a good job of making it kind of this out of place. You're not really sure what era it happens yeah. in or if it's in, you know, an alter. Like, like you're, you're being told a fairy tale yeah. and that can look like anything. But then she shows up and it's kind of jarring. Like, oh. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and I, I, I really like the way it looked. I still, I, I think that they both just died. They both ate bad mushrooms and died. That's the story. <laughs> That's the story. Yeah, there you go. And, um, well, and, and I, I liked the movie. I did. I think you know, anyone listening, if you haven't seen it yet, like go ahead and, and uh, queue it up. It's on Amazon Prime right now for free. But probably there, it could have been trimmed down. Like, it just could have been trimmed down. It was 87 minutes. <laughs> it could be trimmed down, but it would have been a TV pilot. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, then isn't, <laughs> isn't that probably a, a red flag then that maybe uh, things aren't told uh, cohesively? Or maybe there's some things that drag on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's my point. It's like, you can't trim it down. You trim it down anymore and there's nothing there. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, then perhaps some things maybe should have been smoothed out or rearranged. A good chunk of my issues with it would have been alleviated had there not been narration. I don't like being spoon-fed shit. You don't need to tell me what you're feeling. Just you know, show it in the story or conversationally. Um, everything that Gretel narrates 
is just needless exposition to what we're seeing. Exactly. Like at the end when she's like, um, and all the kids' souls came out of the woods and I knew that they'd be free because now I'm going to be a good witch. Or am I? Right. And right. it's sort of like, yeah, we, we got that. We saw, the, we saw the kids fade away and then we saw your fingers turn black. Like we get it. And then like there was a really weird undercurrent within the story because it's clearly a story about like femininity becoming a woman you know she gets her period while she's there so it's like so once you become a woman you're a witch (laughs) no because like (laughs) like that's literally like why is it like gretel just happens to be the one who meets the witch Mm -hmm. and she's like well now you're gonna be a witch haha what do you think about that (laughs) you're bleeding now you're gonna be a witch here grab some grace and lube up this stick (laughs) What the fuck was that? <laughs> well, let me explain to you some things, Colby. No. <laughs> no, I think there's there's a part right before they meet up with the witch where she, um, in her narration, where she says something along the lines of, um, Mother always said I could see things before they happened or something like that, which is a lazy way of... No offense, Oz Perkins. It's that narrate Instead of showing us, um, he tells us that, oh, you know... Gretel is unusual. Um, but, but, I agree with you that there's so much that could have been more interesting had it been left up to the viewer's interpretation. Like, just, you know, we... I think it's trying to be a feminist allegory, mm-hmm. but the only women you see in the movie are crazy or witches. Right, right. And we get, uh, we get that... Again, it's narrated to us and doesn't need to be. We get that part where Gretel, you know, her their dad's dead. Their mom's crazy. She has to take care of the family. So she goes to interview at that Lord's house mm-hmm. who turns out to be a total creeper. Mm-hmm. And then we get narration over the top of that. And we don't need that narration. And it should just be obvious from that point to up till they yeah. meet the witch. And that journey is, um, like you said, it's trying to be a feminist allegory. But it's also trying to be the idea of... Uh, what you actually want to be and where you want to go with your life as opposed to what people, even people who think that they're looking out for you, what their agenda is for you. And I think that would have been so much better conveyed, uh, again, without the narration. I think that that nugget of story is far, is done far better in The Witch. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Because <clears throat> that's essentially the same story. Right. It's just, you know, instead of Hansel... Instead of Hansel and Gretel, it's the Puritans. Um, And another thing, (laughs) at the very beginning of their little journey, they're like, let's go to this fucking house. There's somebody that I know that might live there. And they go in and be like, oh, I guess we'll just sleep here. And there's like candles lit all over. Like, it's not abandoned. Somebody's fucking there, idiot. There's lit (laughs) Those don't light themselves. And then, oh my God, there's a monster in here. Run. Oh, well, no shit. It's almost like you just kicked in somebody's door and decided to sleep in their house without telling anyone. (laughs) Like, yeah, I knew someone, knew someone that used to live here. I don't know if they still do. Well, let's take a nap. <laughs> right. <laughs> it looks comfy. Could enough. be this person, or it could literally be anyone else in the world. <laughs> Which it turned out to be. Yes. <laughs> and then, yeah, that just kind of felt like a, a way to introduce the, uh, the what would you call him, the huntsman? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the woodsman, the guy. <laughs> the level-headed, strong male? Like, I, again, <laughs> there's, there's the opposite side. Like, there's they show evil guys and then they show heroic guys Mm -hmm. but with women they only show witches or crazy people right 
And so that's weird. Like, I, that doesn't, it feels very surface level. Like, I want to make a feminist movie, but I don't know how. So I'm not going to ask anyone. I'm just going to try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of. Well, just the idea that, that um, I guess, I, I don't know what they were trying to say at the end, especially with um, Alice uh, Krieger's story of absolute power corrupting absolutely. So and, have it. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah absolutely. So here's my power, I guess. I don't know. You can have it. You killed me with your lube, lubed up stick. <laughs> so now you can be the witch. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a movie with a lot of uh, good ideas, and maybe just they're not followed through with that keenly. I think it's I think it's my favorite of his movies because it looks amazing. It does, and I just I just wish there was a little bit more thought put into everything else. <laughs> well, and there is a part that I really enjoyed without going into too much detail. It's when uh, um, Alice Griega has her little snack, and she reaches in her mouth. <laughs> Pulls out the hair. Yeah, pulls out that huge, long little That's girl's the cover of the movie. <laughs> I don't think you're spoiling anything. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> but it is a good scene, especially when you see what comes before it, and you're just like, ew. So, again, the aesthetics are good, and I think for some people that will definitely be enough to pull them through. Like, I would revisit it again just to watch it laid out. Yeah. But now I want to see Holy Mountain. <laughs> Holy, oh, a fucking trip, man. <laughs> Prepare yourself. And he's he's been far more influential in film than people realize. I guess so. Because I... of uh, his uh, Dune adaptation that never got made. Because that didn't get made. I, I, there's a documentary about it called Yodorowsky's Dune. I would highly suggest watching it. Okay. As well as his movies like Holy Mountain or El Topo or uh, <sighs> Santa Sangre. Really interesting director. Still alive. He's like 90s now. <laughs> He's one that I've heard a lot about. Um, I just haven't watched any of his stuff yet. I, I went to a midnight screening of El Topo when I was in college. We had, used to have this theater. I, it's probably still there. MSU. There was a student theater called The Procrastinator. And they would do midnight showings of you know weird movies or um, cult classics. And I just saw the cover of El Topo, which is uh, like a dude riding a horse with an umbrella and like a little naked kid sitting on the back. <laughs> in the flat desert. I was like, I don't know what the fuck that is, but I gotta see it. <laughs> and it's a really weird, trippy Western movie about mysticism and violence and religion. And I don't know. It's really, really odd, but I fucking love it. El Topo. Starring Alejandro Jodorowsky as well. He actually has a sequel, I think, too. He was trying to get a sequel made forever, and it never panned out, and I think they finally released him as a comic book called The Sons of El Topo, maybe? For a while, it was gonna be called Abel Kane. It was called the Sons of El Topo. Then it was going to be called the Sons of El Toro, because he lost the rights to use El Topo, so he changed the character's name. <laughs> For a while, like in the late '90s or early 2000s, it was going to star Marilyn Manson and Johnny Depp. Oh wow! Yeah, really weird, weird, weird dude, weird stories, and a weird collection of people that are fans of his. Actually, his movie El Topo was literally the first midnight movie. Oh really? Because John Lennon discovered it in the mid to late '70s. So like, this is fucking great. People need to see this because it was a Spanish movie. People need to see this in the States. And the only, the only theater that he could get to play it, like played it at midnight. People flocked to it because it was a weird art house movie. And then that created the, the, uh, what's the word, the genre, not the genre, the subculture of like midnight movies. Well, thank you, El Topo. Yeah. And John Lennon. And I got to see it at midnight. So I was happy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Good corners. Part of it. (laughs) You are. 30 years later. God damn it. All right. 
Well, see, learning all sorts of new things with you always. Um, fucking the only comic book movie this year was uh, Wonder Woman. Oh, can we talk about? Yeah, let's talk about Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but that reminded me. Um, the second season of Harley Quinn. I haven't watched it, so oh. no. <laughs> <laughs> we need to watch it so we can talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> that came out in twenty twenty. It was a blast. It was so much fun. But it's not Vertigo. <laughs> and El Topo is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you'll find. I think you'll find that I can talk in circles enough to make it Vertigo. <laughs> I bet you could. <laughs> but no, I, I don't know. I'll watch it eventually. I don't think I have HBO Max anymore. Uh, so, I don't know. I'll have to wait to the DVD. Oh, fair enough. Um, I don't know. I watched Munchie. No, that was in, <laughs> no, that was in January. This is a kid's movie from the 90s that uh, my friend Chris's daughter is obsessed with. So Ooh. I watched it with her when I went over there the other day. And then I bought her Munchie 2. <laughs> Munchie Strikes Back, excuse me. Munchie Strikes Back? Pretty sure they're only available on VHS. <laughs> How was the story of Munchie? I don't know. <laughs> you kind of zone out a little bit. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Daisy was enthralled. That's not what Munchie is about. <laughs> okay, we're, we're too deep into this. we got to start talking about something... <laughs> Vertigo. So, uh, the comic book we're talking about today is called 2020 Visions. It was written in 1997 by um, Jamie Delano and art by, well, art by a rotating crew. I just remember the first story is uh, by uh, Frank Quitely, who's one of my favorite artists. So, Frank Quitely does the first story. Second story is Warren Pleece. Third story is by J- uh, art by Jamie Romberger. And the last one is Steve Pugh. Steve Pugh. Steve yeah, P, Pugh. yeah. Look, P as in pie, J as in goose. <laughs> it's literally what it says. J as in goose. <laughs> U as in goose. <laughs> Steve Pugh. I, I just discovered the uh, like tr- translate function on Wikipedia, so I've been having fun with it. <laughs> Very handy. So one of the, like, immediately the thing that jumped out about this story to me, the first story uh, that Frank Quitely did the art on called Lust for Life is so 2020. <laughs> it is. It I, is. When I first read this, because so that's another thing I should point out. I only have a hazy recollection of these <laughs> stories because I read this in like March of last year of 2020. Um, just because it's 2020, so I want to read 2020 visions. And the first story is like about a global pandemic. There's everyone is walking around with face coverings. There's talk of huge societal issues that are analogous to the actual 2020, like uh, like Strange Days, just very prescient. And I, at the time on Twitter or Facebook, maybe both, just took a bunch of screenshots of this comic. It was like seriously, guys, this came out in 1997. <laughs> When life imitates art. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Um, so anyway, it, like, just really, really interestingly uh, of the time. Back then it was sci-fi, now it's reality. <laughs> Amazing how that plays out. Ew. Yeah, um, although I'd say uh, Jamie Delano's version is much more entertaining. <laughs> so the, fir- the first story, Lust for Life. The second story is called La Tormenta. third one's called Renegade. And the, first one's called, or the fourth one is called Repro Man. And each one, each story focuses on a different person. And as we just talked about, they're all people in the same family. Mm-hmm. It's like the father and then his daughter and then her two kids. Yep. Is that right? Yeah, her okay. two kids, her sons. And, uh, oh, and 
good uh, good job pointing that out for me because I had no idea that the uh, main character of the second one um, in La Tormenta, Jack Atlanta, this lesbian detective, I had no idea that she was the daughter of the guy in the first one. So thank you for making it's that. Brought, she, she mentioned something about her dad in one of I can't remember. It's like at the beginning of one of the issues. Just one of those things that pointed out. Because I... The, other than that, the four stories don't have anything to do with each other. Right. Different parts of the world, different like socioeconomic things going on around them. And for a while, I was wondering if they were even connected at all. Mm-hmm. Like, is this just four, like, Twilight Zone, you know? Twilight Zone episodes don't connect. Um, I thought maybe there's just four completely unconnected stories and different versions of 2020. Until I realized, oh, no, they are. And, like, there's that one, I think it's in Repro Man, they talk about, like, the crazy religious cult in Renegade. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, uh, the story opens with uh, brother Adam in the limousine watching the news. And it's his brother from the previous story yeah. who's uh, one of the victims of this crazy religious cult, like being crucified on live TV. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so which out of those did you appreciate the most? Uh, first one. First one was my favorite, by far. I fucking... Because, again, I, I really like Frank Quayley art, and that one felt so real to me. Mm-hmm. And and I also really liked kind of the message of it, which is, sounds weird because it's a really dark, fucked-up story. But at the end, the main character is this old man who's angry at the world, and, you know, like, he has a disease, and he's pissed off at the the new generation or whatever. And his whole plan is to, like, kill himself. And what, is that the... Where is he at? Like, the Empire State Building or whatever? Yeah. yeah. Whatever it is. I can't remember. Again, it's been a while. But his plan is to, like, fall through the fan so that his body, like, just gets obliterated and his, the disease that's in him gets spread to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I really like the end that he doesn't succeed. And, again, I can't remember if, if he makes this discovery or that someone else says it to him. But they're just like, like, no, this isn't your world anymore. Like, you're a fossil. Go die alone. <laughs> and let this new generation live their lives. Right. And that, that's, that's interesting to me because you don't see that a lot. So much of popular culture is all about, like, like completely disconnected. But, like, the Expendables or, like, action movies, you know? Like, the way these tough guys used to do it. And there's so many stories about, like, the old dog coming out of retirement to, to solve the problems of today. You know, like, fucking... Uh, Charles Bronson movies. What are those called? Death Wish? Yeah, yeah, Death Wish. Yeah. Or uh, even I mean, fucking even John Wick, you know, like a retired hitman coming to show these new guys what it means to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to have the old guy in the story be wrong, it's, I, that was really cool to me. Very interesting. It is interesting. Um, and on in that vein, too, what I liked about it is the fact that the two, the two main characters, the two protagonists, are they're old people during a pandemic. Yeah. And that's especially, unfortunately, relevant now when uh, we do have a pandemic going on and the people who continue to insist that it's not a problem are like, oh, well, it's really only mostly old people that are dying. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, well, no matter what your lifestyle is or what you believe in, uh, we're all going to get old. So so I hope... uh, I hope that um, um, future generations have more compassion for us than we apparently have for our elderly now. And that's what's so great about this first story is that, you know, they're not perfectly chiseled, attractive young people looking good during an apocalypse. They're both old and it's grimy and it's kind of gross. And um, 
Delano doesn't shy away from that, but nor does he make fun of them for it either. Yeah. You know, there's still um, Alex Wojcik. Is that? Sure. But sure, why not? <laughs> the main character, Alex Wojcik, who used to be a pornographer, um, and his former lover, uh, Zandra, who he infects. Yeah, they're, they're both old people. And they're both, uh, he manages in a very short amount of time to make them both um, interesting individuals, yeah. which you don't see very often, you know, for the o- over 40 crowd. Yeah. But I also, I, I, like, I like going back to kind of what you said versus what I said. There's also that tension there about the old versus young. And that, that realistic, I mean, even, even right now, with we're talking about how the pandemic mostly affects older people, well, also seems like the older generations are the ones who are, are taking it the least seriously. A lot of them, yeah. And, and that's the thing, like, there's, that, there's, no, there's no right or wrong when it comes to young versus old. No. There's, but at the end of the day, the young people are the ones who are going to have to forge forward, just like the next generation is going to have to forge forward from them. And so it's just this endless cycle of young and old, right and wrong, and always, there's always a tension between all of those. Right. And the way, the way this doesn't portray either sensibility as being correct but just rather the inevitability of the old are going to die out and the young are going to have to to charge forward yeah yeah well and that um there's a great scene that that touches on that very thing where uh the for those of you who have not read it yet all of the sick people end up quarantined on ellis island where uh they under the guise of uh sanitation and you know this is where we it's a research facility that's where they take the sick people to take care of them when in reality they just get dumped there and so uh alex and zandra end up there and she says that very same thing to him like you all your life you've been waiting for this apocalypse like this big thing for you to go out on and for you to prove your mettle and for you to get back in the game and she's like well it's happening right now and you're old and dying. Yeah. And um, so I agree. It's, it's, it is about uh, gracefully getting out of the yeah. way. And that's also a, like a lot of extremism, like fucking doomsday preppers. And like, I oh, can't wait for the end of the world. Like, well, it's here. What are you doing? You're <laughs> whining about wearing a mask. Exactly. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You couldn't go to Walmart without wearing a mask. What makes you think you're going to be able to survive yeah. out in the wilderness for six months? Exactly. <laughs> So, okay, we're, we're running a long time. we got to get into the next one. Okay. What's the, right. the next story? La Tormenta. Yes. Uh, is this like serial killer? I don't remember this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wait, La, okay, La Tormenta, serial killer, renegade, um, uh, fucking religious extremism, repo man, repro man. Um, it's like about breeding. All right, that's it. We're done. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good book. Read it. <laughs> um, which, which one is your least favorite? Let's do that. Um... For me, it was Renegade. Really? I think it was Repro Man. That one took me the longest to get through. Mm, yeah. I just, I don't know. By then, I just wanted to be done. <laughs> Didn't really captivate you. Yeah. I think La Tormenta was my second favorite. No. Probably goes, it probably goes one, two, three, four, like that. One, two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good order. For me, it's probably two, one, four, three. Um. And this is no offense to James Romberger because he is a fantastic artist. I mean, the guy has, you know, he's been in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but probably I, I hated his art in Renegade. I just, I don't like it at all. I remember being really dark. 
It's like, just like muddy and dark. That's the only thing I remember about it. <laughs> it is kind of well. It's it's so flat. Like he draws his character. You and I have talked about this in in previous works. Um, it's just flat and ugly, but it lacks that grotesque uh, fascination mm-hmm. that some artists have, where you're like, well, that's not pretty to look at, but I'm pulled in by it. Yeah. Um, his art in this, it just looks bad. <laughs> it looks totally flat and one dimensional. It's toneless. I would say that probably Repo Man is the most cinematic ready. Like, I can see a, a group of filmmakers sitting down and be like, yes, this is the one we want to turn into a full-length feature movie. Not saying that that makes it better, just that in terms of its aesthetics, it would probably be the first to get turned into a film. But no, I, I enjoyed it. I don't know if all of the stories necessarily tie together with that much impact, but I... Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if they tie together or not, because right. they're so separated. And, like, literally, the most the most connection they get is like, oh, my dad lived there. That was my brother. Right, <laughs> that's, exactly. That's <laughs> exactly, yes, yes. The scattered family, so to speak, that has no contact with one another. But, you know, it, it was fun. It was a good read. I think Renegade... That's the religious one, right? Yes. That one, like, probably, aside from Lust for Life, is one of the most, I guess, also, I don't know, immediate to me. Just because of religious extremism has gotten so fucking crazy in this country since 1997. Yeah. Yeah. The door has been opened. Yeah. I mean, it was always there, but it, it now they feel like they have license to really... Uh, get out there and do their jam. I mean, uh, realistically, this, this is a country that was founded on religious extremism, you know? That's like, so true. I guess I get it, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's fucking... Um, oh, one thing I wanted to mention, so I said that this came out, what, 97 to 98. I recently discovered this bit, this quirk, that I think December 1997 was my personal favorite year for comic books. Really? Specifically, DC comic books. So back in December 1997, DC had this gimmick called Face Month, where all other covers were close-ups of characters' faces. And I just I remember some really great issues from that from that time. But December 1997 had 2020 Visions, had Action Comics Face Month, Adventures in the DC Universe Face Month, which is one of my favorite covers of all time, of the Flash with his giant head. I actually have that issue signed by the artist. Oh, cool. I met him in 2019. It had Astro City, number one. It's a fucking classic comic book and a great series, uh, great great characters. Batman, the animated series, the comic book, The Adventures of Batman and Robin were still going. Uh, Helix was still going strong with Bloody Mary before everything got folded over to Vertigo. Books of Magic. Uh-huh. Again, all the Facebook cover or Face Month covers were great. Uh, the Dreaming, number 19. Uh-huh. Same Man Dream Country, the Essential Vertigo edition was out. More Face Month stuff. Gross Point, that was a fun, weird series. <laughs> Hellblazer, number 120. That was the 10-year uh, anniversary? Yeah, 10-year ten, ten anniversary of Hellblazer. Oh, wow. And the Books of Magic Hellblazer crossover was going. House of Secrets. Invisibles. Number 11, the, oh, the second series. Fucking classic. The JLA, that's Morrison's JLA. Uh, that was The Rock of Ages. That was a huge storyline at the time. I like that cover. I feel like it was one more Vertigo thing. 
Oh, Major Bomber. It's not Vertigo, but that was, that, I fucking love that cover. He's <laughs> brushing his tongue while he's drinking soda. <laughs> That's a really weird, funny, fucked up comic book. <laughs> it looks like weird and funny and fucked up. Oh, and Michael Moorcock was doing his multiverse comic. I forgot about that. One of those characters showed up in the league. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, oh, and Preacher. Preacher was at number 32. It was going strong. Uh, same in Mystery Theater. was up to 57. Just listing shit. And Starman was still going. Uh-huh. I love that Face Month cover. That's a good one. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's just it was just a cool month for comics. And the Tangent Universe stuff was going on. I don't really care about any of that. Transmet <laughs> was up to number four. And I just I love the uniformity in all the face month covers. That was a cool idea. That is as cool. far as like comic book gimmicks go, that's one of the better ones. That is so good like one. hollow foil and whatever. Multiple covers. What a good month for comics indeed. Yeah. So anyway, um twenty twenty visions. What's the consensus? It's a vertigo for me. There are stories there I would revisit. And actually, it'd be one that if uh, they were to revive it somehow, that I think uh, there's a lot more you can do with it. Yeah. I'm going to say Verta Slow. Mm-hmm. I liked it, but I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked that first story, and I like elements of the other two. Like, I really like the main character in La Tormenta, the cop. Um, what did you say her name was? Uh, Jack Atlanta. Jack Atlanta, yeah. And that kind of, uh, the culture that was created at, around that character and the like drag queen aesthetic. Yes. You know, like she draws on a mustache and she identifies as a woman, but she dresses like a man to the point that she even again, like draws facial hair on and stuff. And she take hormone treatments or not. I can't remember if they address that, but I I thought that was really interesting and, and somewhat similar to what we see today of kind of the, the larger acceptance of the trans community. Like it's, more accepted now than it was. Right. Mm-hmm. And especially, like, in 1997, that's that's a pretty interesting main character for a story. A uh, female cop who dresses like a guy and is an open lesbian. Exactly. And and she, I, I like the fact, too, in that, that she really doesn't care what other people think. Yeah. Like, she likes the way that she looks. Yeah, exactly. She's a very, very layered character. I thought that was, that was well done. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was, it was, oh, can we talk about the covers real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, Do the covers, it is, I don't know. <laughs> I have it, I have it here, I will tell you in just a hot minute. Um, Steve and John Phillips. Yeah. Yeah. Like photo collage covers. They're, yeah, they're different. I appreciated them. When I first saw this, I thought it was a basic illustration until I looked closer. Yeah. And I really liked the detail that he did there. I remember the whole reason I have this series, I mean, other than the fact that it's Vertigo, is uh, back in 2003, I think, this is a comic shop in Tri-Cities that was going out of business, and they were selling long boxes, just empty long boxes for 20 bucks. Buy a long box and fill it with whatever you want. <laughs> and so I bought one, and I remember seeing, like, I was just trying to grab any Vertigo stuff I want, I, I could find, because it's like the beginning of my Vertigo obsession. And I remember seeing that first cover of the dude falling and all the people like all the faces of the shocked people looking up and be like wow I remember my first thought was like that must have been a pain in the ass to take all those pictures (laughs) of all the people and then arrange it in there so that they all have the same sight line you know and Mm -hmm. you never know who's gonna be looking left or right or whatever having them dress like somebody's wearing a hockey mask and people are dressed like punks people are dressed in suits just a really interesting image for like the first issue of a comic and I remember thinking like that's that was probably harder than drawing that 
<laughs> it could have been, yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, again, like comic art is difficult enough, but like to have a collage with that many people, like that, that must have been time consuming. <laughs> yeah, a lot of uh, uh, tweezers, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, a good series. I would read it again. Like you said, some aren't as as captivating as others, but I think it. Uh, I think for the most part. Delano accomplished what he set out to yeah. do. And that's, a, I mean, that's the nature of that type of storytelling. The, um, like the Twilight Zone. What's the word? Um, uh, episodic. Yes. That's the nature of episodic storytelling. Is that some are going to hit harder than others. There's people out there that probably the third story is their favorite. And that art's the best to them. And then Frank quietly makes people look ghoulish. Or whatever, you know? But like, I think the emotion behind all the stories is really what sells it more than the differing art or whatever. Oh, definitely. And how all those things come together. Oh, that we're speaking of emotion, um, something that uh, made my uh, my heart a little sad and happy to see it is that uh, this is the first time I've read these books that you were kind enough to let me borrow. And on page 10 of La Tormenta is a beautiful obituary to uh, Vertigo editor Lou Stathis. And they, uh, they drew him. They didn't put it in a photograph of him. They drew him and... Uh, they have all these quotes of his on different topics. And uh, it was just really well done. I kind of got distracted by that. I was like, oh, well, which great. Issue did you say it was? La Tormenta, page 10. Which, which issue of La Tormenta? Oh, excuse me. Um, I, think, I think it's the, the first or the second one. Dang it. Yeah, I kind of feel like he was one of those that, um, well, you know, your, your time is your time when you die. But if I had to say that he was, someone was cut down in their prime, I feel like it's Lou Stathis. I like a lot of the ads in these these comics too. Oh, there he is. Yeah, 1997. Yeah, and that's one of the things I, I love about reading these as a like the single issues as opposed to a graphic novel, is uh, getting to see all the old ads. It's fun. <laughs> and Lou Stathis on comic books crossovers. I hate them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Lou Stathis on writing. Today's fiction is just tomorrow's fact in a bad suit. Fuck me. That's perfect for this. <laughs> Isn't it? Holy cow. Thank you, Lou. Yeah, he edited Hellblazer, Animal Man, Doom Patrol, The System, Industrial Gothic, Prez, and Dumb Fear, all of which I own and have read. <laughs> Fucking thanks a lot, Lou. That's awesome. Um, Lou Stathis on the 90s. But then the butt end of my consciousness is still crazy glued to the 60s. Back then, you could seriously go around thinking that anything was possible and not be cynically dismissed as some drooling... Microcephaloid, microcephaloid, dangerously out of touch with reality. These days, it seems as though believing in even the possibility of such simple and obvious things as basic order and unconditional justice is the product of a foolishly optimistic and laughably unrealistic mind. What the hell's happened to us? Jeez. <laughs> Good question, Lou. <laughs> no. And these are all interviews or things that he'd written throughout the years. Like, that one was from Reflex in 92. But he had, like that car crossovers I Hate Him is from On the Ledge in 93. And that was like the at the end of every Vertigo comic. There's, and I'm going to pick the one that doesn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a section called On the Ledge. Oh, Men's and Sun. I read that. Vertigo comic. It's not very good. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that's, that's really good. I'm glad that you pointed this out. Uh, it was just a wonderful surprise. I didn't, I didn't expect it to be there. And then I was like, hey. Yeah, so it's in issue five of 2020 Visions. Thank you. Issue five, yeah. Which is issue two of La Tormenta. 
Okay, so we're done with 2020. Fuck, 2020's in the fucking rear view. We got hindsight. It's 2020. <laughs> Indeed. So we're all done with 2020. Never have to talk about it again. It's just like the year 1984. <laughs> classic year where Wonder Woman saved the world from nuclear war by getting into our brains. Telling us to stop wishing. She said, stop it! <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> and we've never had any problems since. Oh. <laughs> the end. Um, okay, so uh, what, what should we do next time? I want to do Terminal City. I think I already said that. Yes. Terminal yes. City. Coming up. I reread that recently and had a goddamn blast. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Here's my little uh, 2020 visions. This is what the extent of my notes. Much like the actual 2020, it's a story about a global pandemic, religious extremism, pornography, corrupt pol police, and the older generations blaming society's ills on the youth. That about sums it up. That's it. That's all I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a pretty damn good descriptor. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, uh, we'll do Terminal City next, maybe something else. I don't know. Yeah, if there's anything you guys want us to read, watch, etc., that somehow ties in with Vertigo, let us know. Vertigo or Vertigo adjacent, like Wonder Woman 1984. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so um, please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Vertigo Voices or Instagram Vertigo Voices. Email us at Vertigo Voices. I don't like that. I don't like the at there. Ver email us. Our address is VertigoVoices at gmail.com. We're everywhere. <laughs> Whatever your preferred podcast platform is, find us there as well. Thank you for listening. Yeah, we're on fucking all podcasts, man. <laughs> I won't even believe it. <laughs> all the podcasts. There we are. <laughs> and yeah, that's it. We're good. We're done with 2020 and the visions of 2020, the hindsight 2020 visions. That should be the sequel. Hindsight 2020 visions. It should. <laughs> Damn. You can only imagine. Also, uh, one thing I mentioned that I don't like reading this collected, and it's true. The the individual issues are the best, but you can actually get some uh, like hardcover collected editions of this series pretty easily. I know last year, after talking about it, my friend Anna found uh, the hardcover on Amazon really cheap, oh. and she was like, after after I showed those images on Facebook, she was like, I gotta fucking read that. <laughs> <laughs> She was not wrong. Yeah. So anyway, uh, go read it. And you can vertigo with it. You can <laughs> take that to the vertibank. I, uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoy yourselves if you do. <laughs> and then play us out. Yes. <laughs> do the honors. Get a 